Uh, we are in Acts 27. We're finishing up our series called Unsinkable, uh, Living a Life That Survives the Storm. So if you want to turn there, the verses will appear on the screen. But uh, we are finishing that up this morning. When we get to the end of the message this morning, we're going to be seeing that Paul received some criticism. And I, I came across an article in the last few weeks. There's a few different ones. Uh, some of the weirdest criticisms pastors have ever received. And uh, I have to say one or two of them might apply here. But uh, just these are, these are in no particular order. I just copied and pasted them from a few different sources. But these are real criticisms that pastors have received. Uh, you didn't send me a thank you note for sent me sending you a thank you note. Um, this is, I like this one. I would be happy to take your wife to the shops to help her select some appropriate clothes. Yeah, Sharon sent that. Um, no. <laughs> Look at her face. Um, one pastor got a complaint saying, you are too happy. Um, another one got a complaint saying, I guess I have to die to get you to wear a suit and tie to church again. You will. Um, that is true. You keep your end of the bargain, I'll keep mine. Um, you talk about Jesus too much. When are you going to talk about other subjects? Uh, this is one that uh, takes you a minute to think about. Every sermon you preach is better than the next one. Someone said, you don't tell enough jokes when you preach. Then somebody else said, you shouldn't tell a joke to start a sermon. I can't imagine Moses walking up to the burning bush and saying, did you hear the one about... Um, you need to stop talking about reaching lost people. Somebody said, I don't like the color of your beard hair. I'm going to dye it pink next week. Uh, your hair color is too dark for someone in your profession. Folks, all natural. Um, just for men. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean you have to talk about it. This is one that actually someone did say. Will you bless me divorcing my husband so I can marry a convicted murderer? God told me to do it. I'll not tell you who that was in this congregation. Um, <laughs> this is a true one. I was going to leave this one out, but I can't. After uh, the church, a member who had surgery said, Pastor, will you pray for me to pass gas? Um, you don't want a spontaneous answer to that prayer. You want that one to be uh, uh, one when they get home. The frequency of the bass guitar, this might be appropriate for this morning, is making it impossible for the spirit to move. Um, and this was the last one, and this could apply to our church. The music is too good. Church, good. church music shouldn't have that good of quality. And so uh, we're going to see Paul has some criticism, but before he faces the storm of criticism, he's in a real storm. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Acts 27, where Paul has been in house arrest for two years. He's in legal limbo. He's sick of it. And so he appeals to the highest court in the empire. He appeals to Caesar. And so he goes to Rome. He had always wanted to go to Rome. His desire had been to go to Rome, but he wanted to go as a preacher. Now he's going as a prisoner. But sometimes God gets us to the places that he wants us to be, but not in the way we expected to get there. He repurposes our desires and gets us to places in different ways than we had planned or expected. He had planned to go as a preacher. He's going as a prisoner, but he does still get to preach. And he's on this boat. And Paul's a nobody. He's a prisoner and a preacher. The real power on the boat is with the owner, it's with the captain, 
and it's with the centurion. And so they run into this storm and Paul had foreseen this storm prophetically. He had told them, look guys, I don't think this is a good time to sail. He had been through three storms already. He knew what, uh, he knew what meteorological patterns looked like. And so also I felt like God was speaking to him because he says, I can see. He had this prophetic sense and yet Paul has no voice and the majority rule. And often when the majority rule, it leads us into a storm. We are not a people of the majority. The, the God's people are always a holy minority. And so it's not just any storm. It's an unrelenting hurricane gale force storm. And it goes on for almost two weeks. And one of the things I said last week, and a number of you have said it resonated with you, that you can survive a storm for an hour. You can survive a storm for a day. But when the storm keeps on going, when the darkness doesn't lift, when every morning and every evening and every morning and even every evening you're carrying uh, the same weight, you're facing the same conflict, you're in the same atmosphere of tension and hostility and work, you're in a marriage which is crumbling, that's when it begins to take its toll on you. And it's, uh, they're out of control. It says they're being driven along. There's 276 people on board and they're losing all hope. Look at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope. That's a bad place to be. And yet that's where many people in our culture are today. They're giving up all hope. They look at our political system. They look at our economic system. They look at their own lives, their own struggles, their own families, and they've given up all hope. And yet as a church, we are a people of relentless hope because we believe that hope is found not in our circumstances, but in our Savior. It's not found in this life, but it is found in Christ. But they're exhausted. They just want to give up. The boat's falling apart and they're doing everything they can just to hold it together. But look at what Paul tells them in verse 22. I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. That's one of these good news, bad news stories. Do you want the good news or the bad news first? Uh, Give me the good news. Not one of you will be lost. Okay, give me the bad news. The ship's going down. That is basically what Paul says. And I said to you last week that the boat was the only thing keeping them afloat. Their hope was in the boat. They were doing everything to keep the boat together. And I said this, if your hope is in the boat, you're not going to stay afloat. If your hope is in the boat, you're sunk. Because your boat in your own life might be your security. It might be your status. It might be your paycheck. It might be your bank account. It might be your job. It might even be your family. It can be a good thing. It can be your house. It can be your, 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 your bank balance. It can be many things. But if your hope is in any of those things, at some point those things are going to sink. And if they go down, you go down with them. There's nothing wrong with the boat. There's nothing wrong with a good job. There's nothing wrong with a healthy bank account. I'm all for the boat. I'll row, row, row that boat all day long. But if your hope is in the boat, when the boat goes down, which it inevitably will, because life happens and storms happen, and they're relentless, if your boat goes down, you go down with it. Because only God is eternal and unsinkable and unconquerable and all-powerful. And so when we place our hope and trust in him, The boat might go down, but we do not have to go down with it. We can stay afloat even though we lose the boat. And I'm loving how much this is rhyming. We don't have to sink. 
we might lose some stuff along the way that we thought was important. But if you lose everything and you've still got God, you're okay. And so we're going to finish off the story and see what else it teaches us about living an unsinkable life. Verse 27 onwards. On the 14th night, so two weeks they've been in this, we were still being driven. They weren't driving, they were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight the soldiers sensed that we were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 40 metres deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found that it was 30 metres deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let down the lifeboat into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Bow, what's the word? Thank you. Uh, Bow. Okay, let's pause here for a second. Uh, My point is this. An unsinkable life is bigger than me. They're getting closer to shore. They realize the water's getting shallower. And so the sailors decide they're going to let down the lifeboats. They're kind of subtle about it because they want to do it without drawing too much attention. Uh, Guys, we're just going over here to paint the lifeboats. Uh, We've realized that they need a lick of paint and they're over and they're about to get in and get down. They want to escape. And their attitude is basically this. As long as we're safe, as long as we're okay, we don't care what happens to everyone else. As long as we get off this boat and make it safely to shore, we don't care about anybody else. And sometimes in the church and sometimes as Christians, we can sadly have that attitude. We get saved, we get into church, we get comfortable, and we think, well, as long as things are okay for us, as long as I'm saved, as long as I've got my place in heaven, as long as I've got a seat on a Sunday, as long as I'm living a comfortable life, and really, we we wouldn't say it, but we don't really care too much about the world out there. As long as I'm okay, as long as my needs are being met, as long as I'm comfortable, who cares about anyone else? You know, when the Titanic sank, tragically over 1,500 people died. Only a third of the passengers on board lived to tell of the nightmare. But as tragic as the death toll was, the greater tragedy was this. There were so many more people who could have been rescued. The Titanic was certified to offer lifeboat space to almost 1,200 people, but only 700 people or so were rescued. It could hold 1,200, the lifeboats, but only 700 were rescued. 40% of the lifeboat space remained empty. And of the 20 lifeboats that were lowered overboard, only a few were filled to capacity. Several were less than half full. Meanwhile, hundreds of people floated in the open water wearing life jackets near the 20 unfilled lifeboats. Most people didn't drown. They died of hypothermia because they were floating in the water. And what happened was that the people who got into the lifeboats apparently sat at a safe distance worshipping and praising God with lots of empty seats in their lifeboats while people over here drowned and died of hypothermia. But they were afraid that if they got into their boats, their boats might sink. Their boats might fall apart. And so as long as they were okay, they didn't give a rip about the people who were dying over here. Jesus has left his church with one mandate, one message and one mission. 
and that is to rescue dying, drowning people. That's our goal. That's our mission. Drowning, maybe not physically, but drowning in sin and guilt and shame and addiction and oppression and hopelessness and despair. But what can happen is we get into the lifeboat. And we were drowning, but now we're safe. And from that point on, all we care about is our own safety and security and making sure we're okay. And we lose sight of what the lifeboat is for. And that is to save lives. Jesus' kingdom is an expansive kingdom. And it always makes room for more. It accommodates any who wish to enter it. In Luke 4, we read this. The people were looking for him, that's Jesus. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They tried to keep Jesus to themselves. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that is why I was sent. They wanted Jesus all to themselves and Jesus is saying, no, I have a mission and that is to reach more and more people. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know, I look out at this church and it's packed. The kids are out now. There's probably 40, 30, 40 kids outside and there's not a lot of spare seats. And it's very easy for us to look around and go, oh, we're, we're comfortable, this is great. We've packed out the church. Things are great. And yet, you know what? There are tens of thousands of people within 10 miles of here who have never encountered the grace of God, who have never heard the gospel or the real gospel. They've maybe heard a a religious, politicized version of the Northern Ireland gospel, but they've never heard the gospel, the authentic gospel of grace, the authentic gospel that Christ died for them, that he rose again, that he's coming back. And so we need to make room for them. We have to make room for them. We cannot just rest on, well, we're fine. Who cares about everyone else? And so we're going to make room for them. Sunday the 24th of February, we're going to two services, 9.30 and 11.30. Not because we want to, but because we have to. We don't have have to in a sense of we would be fine. Everybody sitting here would still have a seat. But the people out there who don't know Jesus would come in and they wouldn't have a seat. And so we're creating space for people who don't know Jesus, people who haven't encountered the Holy Spirit to come in. And so we're going to do that starting Sunday the 24th. We're working through the details of it, but it's coming together. And you know what? When that second service is full, we'll add another one. And then we'll just build bigger boats. And we'll keep building bigger boats. Because the mission of this church is not just to have bums on seats, excuse me for that. But it is to have people in the kingdom. It is to have men and women who have a lost eternity right now stand before Jesus and not face eternal judgment, but to be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven for eternity. That is the mission of the church. Not that we are comfortable, but that people are saved. That's why Christ died. That's why he created his church. That's why we exist, not for our comfort or convenience, but for his kingdom.
And that is why we are trying to make room. Not because we're trying to build an empire. Not because we want a big church. But because our calling and our mandate is to reach people who are far from God. And bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ. So they don't spend a lost eternity in hell. That is our goal. That is our mission. And while I'm here that will be our only mission. And if we lose sight of that mission. Let's close our doors. And let somebody else move into this building. Because we are not here for anything else. And it's so easy for me to lose sight of that. I'm not saying this. and I can lose sight. I can go, isn't this great? And yet I need to remember this is not about me and this is not about you. This is about them. This is about every person in within a 10 mile radius of this church and further that Jesus shed his precious blood for on the cross on Calvary. He was thinking about them as much as he was thinking about you. And if nobody had made room for you, you wouldn't be here. And we need to make room for them. And I cannot wait for a year from now or two years from now to see the people whose lives have been changed. People who come up here and say, you know what? A year ago, I had no interest in God. I had no desire to follow Jesus. I was lost. I was stuck in despair and addiction and hopelessness. You know, I called to see a woman in Craigavon recently. Somebody had passed, a chaplain in a prison actually had passed me her number. And uh, her husband's in, or her partner is in McGabry. And, and I called to see a woman just not too far from here. And I arrived at the door and she looked at me and I explained who I was. And she said, this morning, and this is not a woman who, quite honestly, you would imagine was searching for God. I could smell the alcohol off her when I arrived at the door of the house was had been through better times let's just say but she said this to me i was she said i prayed this morning that god would send somebody just to 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 talk to me about him and she began to share she had she made a profession of faith at one stage and and she had uh, she had obviously drifted and 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 just uh, i'm going back again to anoint her house with oil because there's stuff going on in there But it just made me realize that people who are looking for God don't often look like they're looking for God. There are people all around us who are desperate. And that's in, we talk about some estates. You know what? The middle and upper class estates have just as much brokenness. They just hide it better behind closed doors. People need Jesus. Let's keep reading. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the rope that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. It seems Paul's overreacting, but he said, unless they stay on board, none of us are going to be saved. Why not just let them go? If they want to leave in the lifeboats, let them go. Because God had clearly spoken to Paul the night before. And the angel had shown up. And this is what the angel told Paul. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Not all who sail apart from you. And my point is this. Don't underestimate the influence of others. The only hope of them being saved was to stay in the boat with Paul. There was a favor upon Paul. There was a protection upon Paul. There was a blessing upon Paul that God's hand was upon him and that impacted and influenced those around him. It was only because of Paul in the boat that the others would survive. Imagine if Paul hadn't been on this boat. This boat would have sunk by now. It's the exact opposite of Jonah. 
Jonah's on the boat, and because Jonah's on the boat, the boat is sinking. So much so that he says, throw me overboard, and you'll all be fine. There are some people who get onto your boat, and they stop you from going through storms, and they stop you from sinking, and there's other people who you will let onto your boat, and they will lead you into storms. Have you discovered that? There's some people who seem to attract storms. There's some people who seem to have a storm magnet on them. That everywhere they go, they seem to just bring storms with them. And it's always somebody else's fault. It's always they've been victimized. Some, you know, others have done something wrong against them. And you go, what, you know what the one common denominator is in this? Look in the mirror. Because some people attract storms. And when you bring them into your life, don't be shocked if you find storms with you. And then there's other people who, when they come in, they just seem to bring favor. They seem to bring blessing. They seem to bring God's favor and protection over your life. That things just seem to go better because they're in your life. They're the sort of people you want to have around you. They're the people who you want closest to you. We see that in the story of Joseph, don't we? Joseph sold as a prisoner into Potiphar's house. As soon as he gets there, look at what we read in Genesis 39.5. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian, not because of the Egyptian, but because of Joseph. Then he's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. Look at what happens. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success. Everywhere Joseph went, favor leaked from him. And touched all those around him. And there's some people in your life that just being around them just brings favor and blessing. They bring us into a greater experience of God's goodness. They calm storms. They bring order out of chaos. And I think church is meant to be a bit like that. Being part of a community of believers where we're under the authority of God's word, where we're under spiritual authority, where we submit to one another in love, where we surround each other with people who want God's best for us. That helps protect us from storms. Somebody just before the service shared a story with me. I'm not going to say who it was. But they talked about how when they were growing up, they had, their family were very poor. And they said every single week, or every, every week or every month, there was a box of groceries left on their doorstep from the church they said they don't know if it came from the pastor or the church but they said we would not have survived without that box of groceries that is i I, my answer to them was i hope we can do that for people someday soon that 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 because of us people can avoid the storms because of us we can lift up and elevate and encourage those who are sinking Beth Muir writes this, the umbrella of protection or destruction in one person's hand can often cover many heads. The umbrella of protection or destruction in one person's hand can often cover many's heads. When people understand under your umbrella, what do they find? Protection, blessing, or destruction. These guys here didn't understand that Paul's umbrella was keeping them from danger. They just wanted to jump ship, do their own thing. Look at verses 33 to 37. Just before dawn, Paul urged them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food because really who wants to eat food when you're in a storm? You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you, take some food. 
You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Hear the confidence or the assurance. After he said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. Isn't it incredible how things have changed? Before the storm, Paul was a nobody that nobody listened to. He had no status, he had no power, he had no position, and he had no authority. And now that the storm hits, suddenly everybody's listening to him. Suddenly he's the one speaking up and people are doing what he says. Because storms have a tendency to level status. Nobody looks posh in a hospital gown. Have you found that? They might look good in their Armani or Gucci before they go into hospital. When they're walking through three north in their hospital gown with everything at the back exposed, they don't look good. Storms level status. I have sat with some of the richest and, and, and some of the poorest people in hospital. And you know what? It's very hard to tell the difference between them. You go to their homes, they look different. You look at their cars, they look different. But when the storm hits, they look pretty much the same. Because storms have this tendency to level status. When you go through a storm, titles or positions don't mean anything. You could be the chief executive of a company or you could be on the dole. And when you are in a storm, you look the same. What matters most is faith and courage and confidence in God and the ability to step up. Paul's hope isn't in the boat, it's in God. And so even if the boat sinks, he is not going down with it. His foundation is in the word of God, not in the circumstances around him. And that enables him to step up and boldly lead. Look at what he says. We've already read this before. Verse 22. I urge you, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Verse 25, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. The word encourage literally means, comes from two words, encourage, to infuse courage, to impart courage, to give courage to other people, to inspire with hope, determination, and confidence. Research has shown that the six most encouraging phrases we love to hear are this, I love you, dinner is served, All is forgiven. Keep the change. You've lost weight. I believe in you. Paul here speaks powerful words of encouragement, but he does more than that. He models what he wants other people to see and do. You see, people will hear what you say, but they will will model what you do. Look at verses 34 to 36. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he ate it. And then it says what? They were all encouraged and they ate some food themselves. Paul doesn't just care about their souls here. He cares about their physical well-being. He says you need some food. You're not going to survive. Some people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And Paul then models it. They're still not sure, so Paul goes, watch me. And he breaks bread and he eats. And as soon as they see him doing it, they start to do it themselves. In a world 
where people are constantly trying to tear people down, where there's not a lot of hope, but there's a lot of criticism. Wouldn't it be great as Christians if we were people who encourage, infuse courage, impart courage, instead of looking at the problems, look at the solutions. Instead of trying to find what's wrong, try to find what's right. Who model goodness in others. William Arthur Ward wrote this, Flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me and I may not forgive you. Encourage me and I will not forget you. Let's finish off this chapter. We're nearly done. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The centurion ordered those, aboard, those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. My wife would claim that I can't swim, that I would have been stuck on the ship, but I want to tell you that I have the five-meter badge that I got in Portadown Pool when I was in P6. Um, the rest were there to get on planks and on other pieces of the ship. That would have been me. Give me a plank and I'm fine. Um, some of you are like, you are a plank. Um, in this way, everyone... That wasn't that funny. Um, in this way, everyone reached land safely. So they made it. The boat sinks, but they survive. I guess my point is this, that storms have an ending. Some of you need to hear this. Storms have an ending. If you're in a storm this morning, I want to tell you it has an ending. It may go on for a while. You may feel like you're going to drown. You may feel like you're going to go under. You may feel like you're falling to pieces. You may feel like it's all falling apart. You may feel like you're not going to get through it, but every storm eventually passes. And sometimes the storm doesn't change so much as you change within the storm. Sometimes God doesn't take you out of the storm as quickly as you would like, but he keeps you in the midst and brings you through it. Sometimes the boat won't survive. That which you dreaded most will actually happen sometimes. The person will die. You will lose your business. You will go into foreclosure in your house. Sometimes that will happen. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you everything turns out rosy. You see, God doesn't promise to save the boat, but he does promise to save me. And so even if the boat goes down, God is still as faithful. And if you look, some people made it by clinging to broken pieces of the boat. And sometimes you look at your life and you're just clinging on to what you can. You're clinging on to the pieces. You're clinging on for dear life, just trying to make it to shore. You're looking at the bits around you and you're not sure how it ended up this way, but this is the reality and you're just clinging on. One preacher who I listened to said this, and it's a little bit cheesy and corny, but I thought it was good. When you're in a shipwreck, cling on to every piece of the ship that you can. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to worship, fellowship, discipleship, and stewardship. Hold on to the basics. You see, what I have discovered in my own life is when I'm at my lowest, when I'm in my darkest place, when I've been going through the storm, when I have been struggling to survive, I don't need a big Christian conference. I don't need people running around shouting hooray and yeho and I don't need some big prophet coming in. I, I have nothing wrong with all that stuff. But when I'm in a storm, you know what I need? Disciplines of prayer. 
disciplines of getting in the word, disciplines of worship and serving and giving, just the basic things that I've been doing for 28 years are the things that get me through the storm. Not the exciting, not the elaborate, not the passionate, not, not, the, not the bells and whistles. The daily disciplines are what get you through the storm. Let's finish as we read what happens when they land on shore. Verse 1 to 3 in chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Worst places you can find yourself. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. See what it says? The islanders showed us unusual kindness. These strangers who they'd never met before showed them unusual kindness. Sometimes God sends you the right people at the right time. Have you ever found that? Sometimes God just sends you the right people into your life at the right time and they have just what you need. And it's not just kindness, it's unusual kindness. It's not just a sentimental feeling, it's an action, it's an expression, it's something tangible, it's something physical, it's something you can feel. Anyone can say something or feel something kind, but it's a different thing to actually express. And sometimes those people will come into your life for just a moment and they express unusual kindness and they leave your life and they have no idea. I have experienced this in many ways. There's a way that immediately comes to mind when three years ago I was completely burnt out and a man who had I'd only met twice in my life walked into our church and he said, can I take you for lunch, Craig? And we went for lunch and he looked at me and he said, you're burnt out. And I said, I am. How do you know? He says, because I've been off for a year with burnout. He said, you need a sabbatical. I said, I know. He said, I'm going to pay for your sabbatical. I'd met him twice in my life and that guy funded our four-month sabbatical. Unusual kindness unusual kindness. I don't speak to him. <laughs> we visited him when we were on the sabbatical. I haven't spoken to him since. Unusual kindness. God sends the right people into your life at the right time. Maybe you can be that for somebody else. Wouldn't it be lovely in a world where everybody's looking out for number one that people in Hope Community Church would be known as people of unusual kindness? Do you know we're sponsoring Love for Life this year? Love for Life, most of you will know it. Wonderful organization. As a church, we're giving them £200 a month, your money, for 2019. And Judith Cairn sent me a letter, and her words were basically, thank you for your unusual kindness as a church. I love that we're able to do that. That's your generosity, supporting a local organization which is doing so much good in our community. Let's be a people of unusual kindness. And these people are unusually kind. How do they express it? They build a fire. It's raining and cold. They build a fire. They meet the immediate need. But look what it says. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. And as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. I mean, for goodness sake. Like he's just survived a a storm. He survived a shipwreck. His fourth shipwreck, may I add. 
while spreading the gospel. It's not like he's out selling ecstasy. Okay, he's spreading the gospel. He's had four shipwrecks. He's just been through a storm. He's trying to build a fire. He's gathering wood and a snake comes out and bites him and fastens itself on to his hand. Really good. You've got a feel for Paul. Notice a snake bit the hand that was feeding the fire. When you light a fire, sometimes it brings out the snakes. When God starts to stoke something up in your life, when God starts to renew something and relight something and rekindle something, and when God is moving forward in a church and in a community, I have found it brings out the snakes. It brings out those who are just trying to tear down what God is doing. And most often that comes in the form of criticism. Look at what happens. Verse 4. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. So there's a snake hanging from Paul's hand. It's fastened itself there, and it's not just for a second, it's for a while. Okay, there's a snake, a viper, hanging from his hand. What do they do? Do they help him? Do they support him? Do they try to get rid of the snake? Do they pray for him? No, they criticize him, they condemn him, they judge him. He must have done something wrong, and the the gods are trying to kill him. Really? A minute ago, Paul was the hero. He was the one who brought them through the storm. And now he must be a criminal or a murderer because God's trying to kill him. And what was he doing when he was bitten? He was just trying to help. He was just trying to get wood for the fire. There's one thing being criticized when you do something bad and stupid and wrong. It's another thing when you're just trying to help. Have you been there? I'd say everybody has. You're trying to help someone and all you get is criticism and condemnation and negativity back. How easy it is to only see the bad in others. We all have that critical spirit at times. And one of the things I'm really trying to train myself to do is when I feel critical towards someone, I try to shift my mind and go, what is good about them? Because I can focus on that one thing that I don't like or the five things that I do like. And most of the time, if I'm being honest, my mind tends to go to that one thing. Particularly if they've done something that annoys me. And I need to step back and I go, what are the five things that that person has done that I really like? Because we can always find something to criticize about someone. It is not that difficult. Like really, it's not difficult to find fault with people. And nobody likes criticism. Nobody likes getting judged or condemned or talked about. It gets to the core. No matter how strong we think we are or how strong a facade we might put across, when you're criticized, you feel rubbish. And it goes round and round your head and you think about it and it discourages you and it shrinks you and it causes you to retreat. It brings out your insecurities. But the simple reality of life is this. If you're ever going to step up, if you're ever going to do anything to make a difference, if you're ever going to impact the world, if you're ever going to serve, if you're ever going to do something for the kingdom of God, the reality is you will be criticized by somebody. I find myself now thinking if nobody is critical of me, I'm probably doing something wrong. 
Because if you're not being criticized, you're just pleasing people. But if you're a kingdom person who is going against the flow, who's trying to be obedient to God rather than listen to people, you will be criticized. As Aristotle said this, criticism is something you can avoid easily by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. Especially in leadership. The price of leadership is criticism. I always say to people that leadership is really two things. It's carrying responsibility and it's having more awkward conversations than the average person has. Leaders have more awkward conversations on an average day than most people have in a week or a year. Because people you love will come to you and you want to say yes and you have to say no. And the price of leadership is criticism. And I'm not just talking about leadership up here. It can be in work. It can be in the home. It can be anywhere. If you're trying to lead your home and you've got a 10-year-old kid, you're going to be criticized, folks. Leaders are the easiest to criticize because they're at the front. You can see my flaws. You can hide yours at home. If you're married, your wife or husband or kids might see them. Everybody kind of gets to see mine on display up here. And there's a lot of them. And I don't hide them very well. Anybody can criticize. But what if we were to go, you know what? I don't particularly like that about that person. But here's what I do like. Here's what I'm going to focus on. If you're in leadership... You can have a snake hanging off your hand and everybody else can see it. So how do we deal with it? Verse 5. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. I love this. Paul doesn't spend time going, God, why me? I deserve better. Poor Paul. Lord, I've just only done good things. You shouldn't be doing this to me. He doesn't get into an argument with those people who are criticizing him. He doesn't go on Facebook and start trying to justify what he's doing, you know. He doesn't start crying from pain or shaking with fear. He just looks at the snake and he shakes it off. He knows that if he can survive the storm and survive the shipwreck, he can also survive the snake. He doesn't let the poison get into him. He doesn't take the poison on board. Just because a snake bites you doesn't mean you have to let the poison get into your system. He just shakes it off. I'm going to read from the TSV here. Taylor Swift version. Because the players are going to play, play, play. And the haters are going to hate, hate, hate. I'm just going to shake, shake, shake. Shake it off. That's from the TSV. Just because a snake bites us doesn't mean we have to let it hang there. Just because someone criticizes you doesn't mean you have to allow it to poison you. I remember hearing a story years ago about somebody who was in the American government and every day somebody who didn't like them would walk past and would spit on their shoe. And eventually somebody noticed this and said to them, why don't you do anything about that? And they simply said, I can't control their actions, but I can control mine. I can't control what they do, but I can control how I respond. You might not be able to control people criticizing you, but you can control whether you're allowed to poison you. You cannot allow criticism and negativity to take you away from the call of God in your life. You cannot allow fear of man to stop you doing what God has called you to do. 
You cannot allow anyone's opinion to have sway over you that only God should have. And the fact is this, people are fickle. It says in the Bible, Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew it was in the heart of man. We're fickle. We're all fickle. And look at this. Look at the next verse. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> stern at him, wait on him to die. He stern right back at them. They looked at him going, when's he going to drop? He stern at them. And eventually they're like, he didn't die, must be a god. People are fickle. Some people will think too much of you and some people will think too little of you. And that's why you can't go by what people think of you at all. You've got to go by what he thinks of you. You've got to find your identity and your security in him. You've got to find who you are in him. Because if you go by the opinions of others, you will be thrown all over the place. But his is constant. His is certain. His remains the same. That if you do good, he loves you. If you do bad, he loves you. Good day, bad day, his love is constant. Live for an audience of one. Live according to what the Father thinks about you. You know, I'm going to have two stories here at the end. I don't know which one. When we were serving in a church in the vineyard, um, there was a big women's conference. It wasn't for big women. Um, (laughs) It might have been. Use the wide doors at the side, please. Um, you see, that's what I say. <laughs> yeah. You can criticise me for that later. Um, but there was a, a very famous, well-known American speaker who we brought over called Lisa Turkhurst. Some of you will have heard of her. Some of you will have read her books. Uh, and she did great. But after the conference, a number of us noticed something, that she didn't come in during the worship, that at the end of the worship, she slipped in a side door and came and spoke, and as soon as she'd spoken, she left. And we criticized her for that. Because to me, it seemed a bit like a diva thing to do. Isn't it? Like, let's be honest. Arrive after the worship, do your thing, leave. Like, it seems a bit diva-ish. Only... Six months later did we discover that just before she'd arrived in Ireland, she found out that her husband had been having serial affairs and had been cheating on her for years and that her marriage was falling apart. And when I discovered that, I realized that instead of criticizing her, I should have been praising her for her perseverance. Because she had kept a commitment in the midst of a storm, in the midst of heartache. This is what she wrote, actually, on the 13th of June last year. The most painful season and decision of my adult life. I worship you could sit face to face so you could see my tears, my deep grief. My husband, life partner, and father of my children has been repeatedly unfaithful to me with a woman he met online, bringing an end to our marriage. I am brokenhearted beyond what I can express, but I am more committed than ever to trust in God, his promises and his plans, whatever they are. Now, they haven't now since reconciled just recently. But all I'm trying to communicate to you is in the midst of her storm, I was quick to criticize her, and yet I had no idea 
what was really going on in our life. And sometimes we just need to step back. And instead of looking for the things that are wrong, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Let's put ourselves in their position and say, look, what can I do to encourage? What can I do to lift up? And in every storm, as she says here, I'm more committed than ever to trusting God, his promises and his plans. She says, the Lord has been so faithful to me every step of this painful journey. In every storm, every shipwreck and every snake attack, that's the constant. God is faithful. Most of you won't have heard of George Matheson. At the age of 20, George Matheson was engaged to be married when he began losing his sight. When George broke the news to his fiancée, she decided she couldn't go through life with a blind husband, so she left him. George's sister stepped in and offered to care for him. In 1882, his sister fell in love and began preparing her own wedding. The evening before the wedding, Matheson's entire family left to get ready for the next day's celebration. And George Matheson was left all alone and he was contemplating life and a future without the only person who was there to care for him. And in the darkness of that moment, he penned these words. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow, my richer, fuller 